On the March with Howard's Army by Jim Wilkinson Part 3 Nil-nil Desperandum One of the great ironies in sport is that while memories of great triumphs last forever, your recollections of the three sides of Gig Lane pulsating and shaking the old ground to its very foundations have hammered that home. The actual period of unfettered celebration is over in the blink of an eye. Real winners set themselves fresh targets and plan for the tough task of following up on their own flawless warm-up act. When the last of the champagne bottles have been uncorked in the players' bar and the 100 club after Ewood bade farewell to the third tier, Blackburn Rovers manager Howard Kendall, never a man reticent to celebrate fully with a close-knit and extremely likeable bunch of players, some of whom weren't junior to him by that much, was already looking ahead. It would only be in later years, looking at our local rivals' fates through the 1980s, that it would become apparent what kind of a decade he'd saved us from, and that in itself would be enough to look back with thanks for. But he pulled off the almost impossible feat of doubling the size of his reputation, failing only by the slimmest margin imaginable on pulling off a feat to dwarf the promotion he'd already masterminded. Yet again, it was all done on absolute peanuts. However happy the builders, bakers and fruiterers who stewarded our club were with returning to Football League member status, there wasn't yet a man of Jack Walker's wealth amongst a prudent bunch with the depth of pocket to fund extravagances. Now, 34, and probably with an eye on the autumn days of his playing career, Kendall spent the bulk of what funds were available, somewhere between forty to 60000 depending on whose source you believe, on the Sheffield United midfielder Mickey Spate, a tough, athletic, cold-eyed box-to-box assassin who could pass and shoot as well with the air of a footballing Clint Eastwood. An even more experienced one-club man, left-back Roger de Vries, cost a mere 25000 from Hull City, but like Stuart Parker a year earlier, his impact was brief and minimal before he too totally drifted out of contention. The pair, the only new recruits beside a lad called Jimmy Hall from Blackpool who never figured, made their debuts as the 1980-81 campaign got underway, with a result which was to characterise, and ultimately perhaps curse the season, a nil-nil draw at home to Huddersfield in the League Cup. A Simon Garner away goal won the tie in the Leeds road leg, and while many feared the step-up a league would prove difficult, Rovers simply picked up the kind of pace and momentum they had displayed in ascending to the promotion places months earlier. A shadow had been cast on preparations as Andy Crawford, scorer of 23 goals in considerably less than a full season since being plucked from Central League football, had, ill-advised by family, decided that he deserved a bigger stage on which to display his undoubted, if slightly selfish, goal-scoring talents. Something of a flawed, singular character, whose admirers and colleagues were not often destined to become actual friends, Crawford had chosen to illustrate his disaffection by training alone on his native sands in Filey raising no objection, even when an enterprising photographer turned up to record the odd spectacle, the snapper cleverly adding a hint of visual irony by ensuring a donkey made an appearance in the background. Crawford was, in fact, like Derek Dugan before him, destined to stay at Ewood for more than another year after this request to leave. The bond with the fans and Kendall, whose troops were bound by a one-for-all philosophy, was broken, however. Though Crawford scored an opening day winner at Ninian Park, his claim on an automatic starting spot was now flimsy. The goal was his sole tangible contribution for 12 months. The unrecognisably improved Glen Keeley headed a midweek goal to see off Oldham at Ewood, and Spate, accommodated instantly, 
in as combative two as is humanly imaginable with Kendall, due to an injury to Tony Parks, opened his account to gain a draw to Orient. Shrewsbury were beaten at home courtesy of a typically thunderous Kendall penalty and Garner's first goal of the season. I had expected to be best man at my mate's wedding the Saturday after. I'd even got a card signed by the promotion squad, but for some reason it got called off and he was duly on the bus to the baseball ground with us rather than putting a top hat on. In the first half, to match that stuff of Myth's performance at Burnley in 1977, the same combination of a Kendall penalty and a Garner goal had us two up playing football as breathtaking as we could have dared to hope for. Not only was there nothing of fear or hesitancy about the football his team was playing, the manager was inspiring his side onto the front foot with his powerhouse midfield displays and taking the game to a fancied side you'd expected to come out all guns blazing in their intimidating stadium. It was mildly disappointing that an Alan Bailey-led comeback saw Derby rescue a point, but the fans knew that not only had the now-adored manager got us back to this level, he was out there cajoling his boys to prove they belonged there against sides and at venues where Rovers' sides had wilted over the years. Wish I still had that wedding guard, mind. It'd fetch a few bob on eBay nowadays. We celebrated the fine performance, the point, and non-nuptials by drinking considerably, getting refused admittance at the Cavendish as the groom of doom had trained us on, the door staff unsympathetic to claims they were more expensive than many of the Tommy Ball loafers waved through, and instead repaired to the less fussy surroundings of the top hat club on Limbrick. Crawford's return to his old ground was his last appearance for a while, as replaced as sub by the youngster Kevin Stonehouse, the boss saw enough in the fleet-footed red-haired raider who had settled another League Cup two-legger with a coolly converted penalty at Gillingham, where he'd scored his only previous goals in the promotion season. This gave him a regular start at the expense of his sulky striker. We had another of those darn goalless draws in the Ewood leg against Gillingham. Stonehouse rewarded Howard's faith with goals in his first two starts at home to Luton and Grimsby. Garner was also getting into his stride with three goals in two games. Clean sheets were also becoming a theme with seven shutouts in 12 competitive outings. The last of those for a bit was at the racecourse ground. Following the Rovers away was not only acceptable again, it had almost become fashionable, and a large and raucous contingent packed the away end at Wrexham, despite a midweek League Cup defeat away to First Division Birmingham. Duncan McKenzie had been having a quiet start to the season, with a solitary League Cup goal on his account. Indeed, had Parks been fit, he may have been the man that the pragmatic Kendall would have admitted, but with the match finely balanced. He broke forward to the edge of the area when Simon Garner cut a cross back from the byline and, timing his run to perfection without breaking stride, struck a first-time left-foot effort which went like a shell into the roof of the net, then continued his sprint, leapt onto the mesh fence, smack-banned in front of the away fans, with one arm raised aloft for what seemed like a full two minutes as the adoration poured down. He was one of those players who, when he got it right, you'd think, how the hell is he playing for us? You can say it was only Wrexham, only this, only that, but it was just one of those golden moments when tension is released, unbridled joy is unleashed, and being a Blackburn Rovers fan as the way game seems like the very best set of circumstances you could ever find yourself in. A Stonehouse double, with what was by now becoming a trademark penalty, struck with considerable expertise, extended the unbeaten dream start to seven wins and two draws, as QPR became the fifth straight side to leave Ewood empty-handed. I've no idea if anyone mentioned promotion, even after a start as good as that, but we probably began to. I was certainly no less adept at talking nonsense then than I am now, and even more of a dreamer. We'd not had a proper sniff at such an outcome since coming down in 1966. If it all seemed easy, however, it was about to get a whole lot harder, 
as Kendall was injured in the QPR game. De Vries had not convinced anyone that he was an improvement on Rathbone, to whom he was largely preferred, and the watertight back unit of the promotion season had been further disrupted by an injury to the masterful Jim Arnold, for whom the somewhat error-prone John Butcher deputised in most games. At Hillsborough on the Tuesday following, a blast from the past tubby midfielder Russell Coughlin stood in without great distinction for the manager, and a strapping lad named Paul Comstiff was drafted in for Mackenzie. The side gave a decent account of themselves, level for a time through another fine goal from Stonehouse, but then a bloke who was to become an arch-nemesis, Terry Curran, a Phil Linnett look-alike who would be covered in tattoos and piercings if he was playing now, bamboozled the backpedalling butcher with an extravagantly chipped winner from some way out. If that had been a tough assignment, it was even more so on the Saturday, when the same lineup took on fellow pace-setters West Ham in a rare match-of-the-day-covered second-division clash. The lineup was the least of the Accrington branch's worries at about 1.30pm, however. Our trusty Aston Sharabang had broken down in the heart of the East End and stuffing scarves, caps anywhere they could be concealed, making damn sure not to utter a word in our northern accents. We boarded London buses taking the locals to Upton Park, praying that the coach would be repaired and outside waiting for a getaway at 10 to 5. These were certainly not times you could walk around the ground wearing a replica top in enemy territory. The likes of Brooking, Bonds and Devonshire proved too good for the side which had started at Hillsborough and we lost 2-0, which was bad enough. The coach had not been repaired, and the driver informed us that a replacement minibus had been sent, but it would be some time in arriving. We were advised by the old bill that hanging around or nipping into pubs, clubs and takeaway was not an option, as the Bush Telegraph would have word out that a few Blackburn oiks were about, and every thug, psychopath and sadist in the locality would be coaxed out to hunt us down. Instead, we were taken to the safe haven of a taxi yard and stood in a prefab, where the plod then had the bright idea that the team coach, due to be escorted past soon, might be an option. It was duly stopped, and a clearly irked Kendall stood on the steps to discover why his boys had been so inconvenienced. It was explained that a few of his supporters were in a bit of a pickle, and he took a look at us, all excitedly waving and smiling eagerly and hopefully. We were going home on the team bus. Well, no, we weren't. Sensing that pervading reek of egg butts, stale skull lager, and burgers consumed now before, Tomato sauce smears and onions still visible on chins and jumpers. Kendall pointed to the two females in the party. Leslie, the pretty little redhead who had the beginnings of a crush on. Her mate Andrea, Andrea's 13-year-old brother and his mate, and said, OK, them four, the rest can sort themselves out. Thus my future wife travelled back from West Ham on the team coach with Howard and his team. They stopped for fish and chips, she recalls, and remembers there was no sign of the collective silence and depression, which typified the first hour and a half or so of the fans' journey home following a defeat. I remember someone noting that I'd looked crestfallen as the teenager who'd become my only vague hint of a love interest, other than Blackburn Rovers at the time, disappeared with the coach into the distance. The minibus came and we stopped, as was customary for a lengthy pit stop in travel organiser Paul Astley's adopted college town of Stafford, where a couple of landlords had got to know us and would inquire how former local favourite Jim Arnold was doing. In a season I hadn't realised was so blighted with injury until studying the minutiae, Arnold was in fact out till after Christmas after a brief early season comeback. He really did almost pull a miracle off, did Howard. Two away defeats, three including Birmingham, had been a bit of a reality check, and we in fact suffered a further three to make it five in the league on the bounce. But the camaraderie and enjoyment of those days was as much a part of the day as the match. Thick as thieves us, these are the days. I still see some of the lads and girls. A few of us meet up at the 50th a year or two ago. Some are gone. Paul Astley sadly died a few years ago after a lifetime dedicated to getting Rovers fans to away grounds. 
to cheer the blue and white halves on. When we went to Sofia in 2002 with his trip, he gave us room number 100 in the hotel, a huge and lavish suite we discovered when we opened the door. We were his oldest customers and the only two who got married. I can cry or laugh at loud thinking of the funny things that happened in those candle seasons, though. Stonehouse scored in a draw when another rum lot, Chelsea, came to Ewood with a large and unpleasant element to their following. The Garner Kendall goal show sealed a by now expected routine home win over Cambridge. After 13 games, Garner and Stonehouse had six goals apiece. The manager had three. Parks was back. Rathbone restored in place of DeFries to reunite the back four, which locked up promotion. But my word, it was a strange, strange season from there on in. In the last 29 matches of that season, Rovers kept 17 clean sheets. Incredible. We also failed to score 13 times ourselves. Crawford scored no more. Garner just won more. His career was oddly punctuated by long barren spells amongst the more frequent bursts of productivity. Stonehouse scored four more, but only one after the turn of the year. It's amazing to see how seldom Kendall had, in his two years at Ewood, a genuine number nine. What we would call the target man centre-forward at his disposal. No wonder that with a bit of money to spend... Even with as fine an exponent of the arts as Graham Sharp amongst his squad at Everton, he went out and signed Andy Gray. Around the time the goals dried up in both ends at Rovers matches, Kendall was approached to manage First Division Crystal Palace. It was a tense, fearful few days and there was minimal radio coverage, even locally. No social media, of course. No sports news TV. You basically waited for the Evening Telegraph and hoped. No one could have blamed Kendall for going. Our previous three managers, Furphy, Lee and Smith, had all left to manage mid-ranking, top-flight outfits. And it was assumed that Palace, whose London glamour might prove even more attractive than the provinces, would eventually succeed in their quest. But something wonderful happened and Kendall said no. For some reason I remember that I was at Brownhill, bought the paper at the co-op that afternoon, and felt like running up Wally Road, holding it aloft and shouting for joy. This was unheard of. We got beat at Notts County, Bristol City and Oldham. Drew nil-nil at home to Swansea in a game that didn't seem as significant as it would obviously later become, and we lost the unbeaten home record in a daft last couple of minutes against Cardiff, chasing a win when we come back from two down to level late on. It's impossible not to analyse every lost point forensically in the light of how it all ended up. A draw at Watford made it six without a win, and Mackenzie scored his last goal for Rovers at Vicarage Road. He played in the next few games, a win at home to Bristol Rovers in which new signing John Lowy debuted for the injured Garner, then three consecutive stalemates. The first, against West Ham at Ewood, was possibly the best goalless draw I ever saw. They were a fine side but Rovers matched them in every way. The next two, both nil-nil, away at Cambridge and at home to PME, like so many individual games that season, I remember little or nothing about. With two wins from 14, one in 10, Nobody was really convinced this side could get promoted to the top level of English football, but we didn't realise just how bloody hard Kendall had made us to beat. It was both our strength and our downfall in some ways. 24 hours after the Preston draw, Rovers wiped the floor with Bolton at Burnton. Stonehouse and Burke the scorers in a 2-1 win which flattered the home side. And while Crawford was enjoying a brief recall, Mackenzie pulling on the Rovers shirt for the last time for a league game, he played in the FA Cup third round defeat at Medellin a few days later, was an unused sub. It was the day I finally began to fully appreciate Tony Parks's undervalued contribution, stood frozen on the open end at Burnden, the scene of so many battles with the Wanderers. But in a season in which injuries stretched Kendall's resources to the limit, poor loyal old Parks was destined not to make it to the end of the season either. 
The year of 1981 is remembered for some incredible sporting moments, and I was in Barbados and at Headingley and Old Trafford for a couple of them. But for Rovers fans, it was to hand us a tantalising glimpse of glories lost before snatching it and the man who almost made it happen away. The final part of this story will come up in part four. That was On the March with Howard's Army by Jim Wilkinson, which first appeared in the Blue Eyed Boy WordPress site in October 2015, following Howard Kendall's untimely passing.